Hello and welcome to episode five of Owen the Saints. I'm your host, Patrick Serlis. With me once again on the other end of the line is my co-host, Jack Serlis. Jack, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, Pat. How are you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. How's how's everything in the UK? Things are okay. It's uh, We've had really nice weather recently, which is making it even harder to, to stay locked indoors. But um, I think I mentioned on the last podcast the content that the BBC has been pushing out has been absolutely sensational. So we've had um, England versus Colombia on the TV this afternoon, which I completely forgot what an emotional roller coaster that was from a couple of years ago, which I'm actually shattered, to be honest with you. I need to lie down after watching that. <laughs> ridiculous. Genuinely ridiculous. It's funny you should say that, actually. So our guest this week is Jim Lucas, who is the managing editor at the FA, uh, working with the England team, and he worked at mm. that 2018 World Cup. So it'll be interesting to chat to him about what it was like working with the England team. Um, for those of you uh, might recognise the name, actually, so Jim was the Southampton media officer between 2012 and 2016. So we'll also discuss working um, in that department at Southampton. He worked with Adkins, Pochettino and Komen, um, involved in a lot of the transfers and a lot of the general day-to-day um, of, of, of what it's like being a media officer at a football club. So that's who we're, who we're chatting to um, a bit later. Before that, we just wanted to kind of wrap up a few little bits and pieces of Saints transfer news that, that came out during the past week or so. Some of you may have seen the story that Sky Sports published uh, on our defensive uh, options for this summer. They have linked us with a defender um, from Eintracht Frankfurt in the Bundesliga called Evan Indica a France under-21 international. Um, Sky also go on to uh, report that Saints are considering uh, a couple of other centre-backs, um, one from Nice, uh, a French youth player called Malang Saar, um, who's out of contract this summer, and a player from La Liga called Mohamed Salisu, um, who apparently Southampton were looking at in January but decided not to make an offer for. Uh, but the big one seems to be this uh, Evan and Dicker, um, France under twenty one international, who uh, apparently again has been has been linked with the likes of Arsenal, Liverpool, and Spurs over the past year. Quite highly rated young player. Um, so obviously, all of this comes with a caveat that coronavirus is probably going to play havoc with the transfer window once it opens, and, and teams will have less money to spend um, more than likely. But just what are your thoughts, Jack, then, on, on us being linked with, with these centre-backs? Yeah, I think it's really encouraging to see those reports coming out. I think if you ask any Saints fan what, what position in the team needs strengthening this summer, you know, 99% would say centre-back. Um, I think it's the position that consistently, I mean, it might sound harsh, but consistently lets us down. We've got goals in our team, we've got pace in our team. We've got good centre midfielders. We've got good full-backs. But at centre-back, we just seem to chop and change. And I think there's a lack of consistency there. Yeah, and I just I can just remember a few games this season where we've got the goals, but we just we just seem to concede too many. Um, we've maybe lost 3-2 or lost 4-3 away. The, the um, FA Cup replay away to Spurs sticks out in my mind when we went 2-1 up. Danny Ings put us 2-1 up and then we just concede two awful goals. Just think, we're just so exposed, and you just think if if we have a top quality centre back in that position to probably partner Jan Bednarek, I just think it would strengthen us massively. And you know, 
help us push up the division and go further in the Cups. As you say, centre-back is a position that a lot of Saints fans feel um, we need to improve. Right-back again is another one you got with Cedric off in the summer. Um, mm. And Kyle Walker-Peters, unfortunately, the kind of circumstances have meant that he hasn't really had much of a chance to impress on loan. Um, mm. So I think it's looking relatively unlikely that we'd make that move permanent now. And there have been noises that we've been looking at a right-back from the Eredivisie um, called uh, Zief, Ziefwick, I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, but he's a, he's a Dutch, right. yeah, he's a Dutch <laughs> youth international um, that we've been looking at as well. And, and that fits the profile really of what Saints try to do in a transfer market, sign, sign these young players from, from leagues like the Eredivisie and, and Portugal and, uh, and, and, and those, those sorts of places um, that have potential with the view to, if they fulfill that potential, then, then moving them on for a significant, mm. um, a significant profit. So, yeah, as as we said, I think it all comes with a caveat of nobody really knows what to expect once the transfer window reopens, but we definitely need reinforcements at the back. Definitely. Um, and this Indica character, by all accounts, uh, sounds sounds like he's a very promising player. There was a good profile on the Bundesliga website, actually, if, if, if people are interested in, in learning more about him. Um, got some good quotes on him from his managers and, and teammates and and a bit of a kind of like comparing him to to who he plays like um so that's worth checking out if you're interested in finding out more about him but I think we'll without further ado we'll we'll move on to chat to our guest this week who as I said at the top is is Jim Lucas who who was at Southampton in the media team for four years and is now the managing editor at the FA um, we'll discuss England, we'll discuss working for a football club, media department. Um, he's got some great stories about working on transfers at Southampton, the likes of Sadio Mane, Toby Odevireld. Um, he, was a, he was a key part in, in, in working on those transfers. So some, some interesting stuff. So let's, let's bring Jim into the podcast now. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Jim Lucas. Jim, how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. You okay? Yep, very well. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time uh, to speak to us. Um, I think you'll be a familiar name to many Saints fans uh, as a key part of the Saints media team between 2012 and 2016, which obviously was a very successful period for the club. Um, You're now at the FA as managing editor there. And hopefully, if you don't mind, we'll come on to your work at the FA shortly, because I wanted to start with with Southampton. I think I'm right in saying that you joined as a communications officer the month that we won promotion from the championship. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I played I played a key role in that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was um, yeah, so sort of March April time, I think it was. So yeah, literally just before just before the club won one promotion. Um, I think you know you, when you're looking for a new job, you're kind of keeping an eye on things and so and stuff and I think as I was kind of going through the interview process it became clearer and clearer that the club were were on the verge of promotion to the Premier League as well which was exciting um, and then yeah started with uh, and I think it must have been Good Friday uh, a mm-hmm. draw against Portsmouth uh, my first game working um, and then yeah lo, lo and behold a few weeks later you know the game against Coventry winning promotion um, and then, yeah, obviously, sort of into into the Premier League the year after that. So, yeah, that that was kind of how it all it all started for me at Southampton. Yeah. Well, yeah, as you say, good times um, for Saints at the time. Could you just give a little bit of background uh, on how you ended up at Southampton? What what had you been doing before that then? Yeah, definitely. So um, I did a sports journalism degree. I kind of was one of those people who, who grew up 
loving football, but knowing they were no good at it. Um, <laughs> kind of trying to identify a, a career that would allow me to sort of combine um, my greatest passion with with a potential career, really. So kind of landed on the idea of, of sports journalism. So as I said, went into a sports journalism degree down in, down in Brighton, um, which was, you know, Great, great three years of my life, really, doing that, studying um, a potential vocation that aligned with something I really enjoyed on a personal level. So did that. Um, so I was in, in university uh, up until 2009 um, and then was was lucky enough, really, to to start my career um, reporting on the club that I support. So I'm, I'm a Millwall fan, um, was lucky enough to get a couple of unpaid shifts with, with a local paper covering Millwall, which was just, you know, a, a dream, really, for someone to be able to write about the team that they support. Um, that quickly turned into sort of my first paid role. Um, worked on, on my local paper, the Southwark News, for a, a couple of years. Um, during that time, obviously picked up a couple of shifts with national newspapers, but started to become aware of kind of a, a booming industry within the industry, really, which was mm-hmm. clubs producing their own content. Um, I think it, it was kind of the start of, of social media really I think Twitter kind of started coming to the fore in maybe sort of 2010 2011 um, and you started to see clubs actually starting to use their website and use social media and YouTube and things like that to, to actually produce content about themselves and going directly to the fans really so mm-hmm. around that time I started to identify that maybe working for a club might be the next step um, whether that would be as a content producer or as a press officer wasn't really something that I'd thought about. I just knew that potentially working for a club would, would be a good next step for me, really. So around that time, I was I was kind of keeping my eye out for, for press office jobs, really. Um, yeah. You know, had, had a few interviews at different clubs and, and didn't get those jobs for whatever reason. Um, I think I was quite conscious that, that ultimately I was just working for a local newspaper in South London that, you know, maybe wasn't necessarily um, an obvious route into working for a club's press office. Um, mm-hmm. but, but luckily for me, yeah, went... Went for a job down at Southampton, had a couple of interviews and then, then was lucky enough to get the job really. So that was was the leap really from um, being outside the tent to being inside the tent almost, going to working for a club and, and working inside a press office. Um, and then yeah, at the time, you know, the, the two weren't really any different. The idea of producing content, but also being a press officer is something now that is almost two completely different departments within clubs really but at Southampton at the time as it was probably was with most clubs around that 2012-2013 it was one and the same so you know a press officer would go from taking a player to an interview with the local paper or taking him to an interview with the BBC and then almost simultaneously getting a dictaphone out and, and taking an interview for the website and stuff like that it was very much one and the same really but a lot of those kind of responsibilities have now diversified into two very different teams and two different very jobs but at the time, it was very much wearing those those two hats, really, in those first couple of years at Southampton. Yeah, so w- when you're at Southampton, um, obviously Nigel Adkins was the manager there when you first joined, but then you went on to work under Pochettino and Coleman as well. As I said, it was a, it was a great time for the club. What was it like working at Saints during this um, kind of big upswing in the club's fortunes, really, because we stayed up um, in that first in the season in the Premier League, and then we kind of went from strength to strength from there. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a brilliant time. I think first and foremost, I think about it as a as an employee, if you know what I mean. I think about the fact that um, I was part of a, a group of staff that were all very driven, very like minded, um, you know, similar ages, similar backgrounds, etc. And we, we kind of 
as a group of staff had a real sort of friendship. I think it's important to to have those friendships, especially when you work in long hours, you work in weekends, you're working, you know, often often into the the, the darkest sort of Christmas nights sometimes and you know you you do need that kind of camaraderie really so whenever I think about those you know those years at Southampton I think about my colleagues I think about the the friendships I kind of built with them and and still have to this day really you know even up a few days ago just on a, a video call with a couple of other colleagues from Southampton former colleagues from Southampton and you know that those are the things that stick with me I think you know you touch on on the managers and you touch on the players and stuff like that and results but you know, the, the biggest things for me was being part of a, a real driven and like-minded group of staff, really. And I think, you know, that played its part without doubt in in the hours we put in, the dedication we put in. And hopefully, you know, that, that allowed in some way to influence what was a good time for the club on and off the pitch, really, I think. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, just a, a few minutes ago about the two different sides to the job. Mm. Um Southampton's kind of, in my experience as a fan, it's always been known, well, the media team's always been known as producing some very, very good content. And I think that that goes from before your time there, your time there, and in the recent years as well. Um, It's kind of, as a club, um, I've got used to sharing stuff that Southampton have been doing amongst my friends. And it it kind of, the club sometimes has been a talking point. for for general football fans as well because of the the content that they've been producing when you were at the club was that a kind of conscious effort that the media team was making you you kind of mentioned that it was the the early days of merging the two media teams together was that a conscious effort that, that the media guys were were thinking about okay we can kind of be at the forefront of this um social media i guess not really a revolution but the kind of club starting to get involved in it yeah it definitely was i think if you you sort of go back to that 2012-2013 period everybody at the club was being tasked with in their relevant areas how how can you be forward thinking how can you be groundbreaking how can you um, build a perception of Southampton as being a club that that is challenging the very best really and you know on the pitch you know we were we were a club that had just been promoted but within the club there were huge ambitions everybody knows about the ambitions the club had at that time under Nicola Cortese, um, you know, we, we were really empowered to go and do things differently, you know, to, mm-hmm. to challenge the norm. Um, and to us, that meant embracing social media. Um, you know, the, there were issues at the time between the club and the local paper. So mm-hmm. that potentially gave us an option to, to almost fill that void slightly with our own content. Um, I think, you know, it's to the benefit of everybody involved that eventually that relationship was was mended because I think it's really important, you know, especially having come from my previous role, that mm-hmm. a club has an independent local press and, and has the ability to challenge and take the club to task at the right time. But as a content producer, we were, we were aware that there was a bit of a void there that we had to fill. So that was part of the, the sort of the motivation as well of understanding that we had a fan base that, that wants to be communicated with Um we had the ability to go and do that and to push the boundaries and embrace social media, you know, be the first to join platforms if we were convinced that we could do it well. And we were the first on Snapchat, for example, mm-hmm. I, I think we, we were just always pushed by, by the people at the very top, Nicola down um, within our own team, you know, Jordan Sibley, our head of media was, was always encouraging us to, to embrace social media, embrace content production challenge ourselves to do things better never kind of be satisfied with um the basic content always try and do things better week in week out try things and fail if we had to 
I think we, we just had that culture really that we always wanted to do better. We always wanted to improve. We, you know, f- frankly as well, we were looking around at other clubs and wanting to be better than them. Yeah. You know, if, if there is a, a bizarre kind of rivalry that exists between clubs in terms of their content teams, trying to outproduce each other and do things first and do things better and stuff like that. And we were definitely part of that, you know, on the pitch we were trying to upset the odds and beat some of the big teams and off of it we were just the same really so yeah I mean to answer your question we were we were absolutely encouraged to to do the things you said about just trying to be first trying to be best at, at the various things we tried to do really and, and yeah that was that was very much the attitude that we took. Well I, I think yeah it, it clearly worked as well because I was just having a conversation with Jack who I do the podcast with um, before this call and we were kind of going back and thinking about some of the things that we remember um, from that kind of 2012 to, to 2016 period and and a few things come to mind and I just hopefully you can speak to some of them but the Luke Shaw England call up being one of them the Ricky Lambert April April Fool's prank with the New Zealand shirt right the way through to kind of Dejan Lovran live tweeting um, from the Saints account during the game uh, and then I think more recently the kind of show your stripes campaign um, with Tom Davis which was really well received among Saints fans and just football fans generally so for some of those some of those things was it difficult to get buy-in from the club um, and how difficult was it to pull off um, those things and how much um, pride do you take in in those campaigns yeah the the buy-in you know on reflection was bizarrely easy I, I look back at these things and just think I don't remember there being any any difficulty in terms of either convincing the players, convincing the hierarchy, convincing the management that we could do these things. Um, you know, I, I don't know how we got away with some of the stuff we got away with, bizarrely. Um, but nothing went wrong. I think you know it was it was great. It, it showed us, as you said, as a, a club that wanted to do things differently, that wanted to entertain their fans. I think that was always number one, like the number one motivation more so than trying to outdo another club, more so than having the appearance of being forward thinking was that we wanted to to make our fans laugh. That mm. Usually that was it, you know, make our fans laugh, make the fans feel happy. Um, anything we could do that maybe would give us that. Um, you know, as, as well, trying to reflect a group of players that were kind of in, in the same boat as us, really. You know, we had young players breaking through that were more kind of social media savvy than generations that had gone before. You know, with with Ricky, we had we had somebody who was just loving loving life. You know, being part of of the journey, and somebody who, who believed that they should be in the England squad, and we believed that too. So yeah. we thought it was a good opportunity to have a bit of fun with that. And, and lo and behold, a few months later, he was in the England squad. So I, I think with with all of those things you mentioned, that the buy in wasn't that hard. Um, maybe it was a time before you know real approval processes had come in, and agents were involved, and players have their own social media representatives and stuff like that now maybe we just kind of caught it sweet at a time when when people were willing to try new things and and also I think as well maybe there was a bit less cynicism like maybe maybe the pitfalls were were fewer maybe the risk of failure wasn't quite so great I don't know but we we just tried a few things not everything worked but the things that did work we think you know stand the test of time and you know even just hearing you sort of mention those two or three things they all are all things now that would still be good and I think that they're the things that kind of make me sort of understand that we were doing the right things at the time that you know even now eight or nine years later they, they could still be a good piece of content if you know what I mean so so yeah we, we were just encouraged to, to always push the boundaries and we had a group of sort of staff and players that were allowing us to do that really 
was there was there anything particularly from your time there that you you kind of look back on as as not the best work that you've done but something that you think okay this this really was excellent and I'm really proud that that um that I was a part of this I think you touched on it slightly with with the the show your stripes mm-hmm. stuff so the for one of the kit launches we we basically just went out and booted a load of footballs around Southampton um, and, and kind of encouraged people to either find find one, take a photo, and then you'd win a chance to win a kit. It wasn't, you know, the content itself wasn't particularly groundbreaking, but just, you know, the ability to involve the fans in that and, and have a real two-way conversation of, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to do something that you can get involved in. You know, I think that was always the, the big thing for us was having a two-way dialogue with the fans and I think that that just summed it up really Be, being out in you know cent, central Southampton driving around in the back of a, a full uh, a Renault Clio bombing um, footballs into roundabouts and leaving them on doorsteps and stuff like that again something I, I don't know how we got away with it because you know in my current age and mindset I'm thinking that that is a um, that is either a public hazard or that is a council issue but <laughs> we just we just kind of went out and did it 500 footballs around Southampton and then encouraging people to take a photo and seeing the photos then start to roll in the next morning seven eight nine o'clock with people taking selfies holding a the football they'd found and then seeing those same people coming down to St Mary's to, to collect their kit and stuff mm. I think for, for me that was just you know again a group of staff that were well, willing to go the extra mile i.e getting up in the early hours and driving around distributing these footballs and then a group of fans that wanted to get involved in what we were doing you know just that kind of perfect juxtaposition of those two things really is, is something that sticks with me definitely and you mentioned about the man the different managers so Adkins, Pochettino and and Coman um and in terms of of buying was it was them working with each of those was there much different yeah I think the overarching principle of always wanting to to push the boundaries do things differently I think that that was consistent all the way through I think that the differences were probably more with my press officer hat on of you know occasionally stepping in for Jordan to be the press officer with the manager all three of them did things differently you know they they the way you brief a manager before a press conference the way you you talk to them about how the, they want to land their messages and stuff like that you know I think to be quite honest the, the way the fans saw them was pretty much the way they were you know Nigel brilliant communicator I think people are seeing the stuff he's doing on Twitter right now actually which is you know that, that's Nigel um, yeah. a, a brilliant communicator Ronald straight to the point you know you, you know where you stand with Ronald and then Maurizio obviously publicly using a translator at the time but but privately kind of working on his English a massively brilliant man manager be that player be that staff um all of them you know all of them different um but certainly the public perception was pretty much accurate I'd say but the consistent for me was that the encouragement to communicate with our fans to go direct to our fans in terms of telling them what was going on at the club entertaining them informing informing them you know, keeping them with us for the matches, really. That, that was consistent all the way through. And as far as the, the players go, you mentioned um, kind of social media savvy and at the, at the right age. And then you had people like Ricky that were, were just really enjoying where they were in their career. Do any, any particular individuals, apart from Ricky, I guess, stand out to you as um, they really kind of got it in terms of what you guys were trying to achieve and it just allowed you to kind of create the best content possible? Mm. I think it was it was a mixture really I think you had you had the youngsters who really bought into the club ethos and, and could tell the club story really well so people like James Will Prowse, Luke Shaw, Callum Chambers 
you know, the fact that they had kind of walked in the shoes of the story that we were trying to tell about being able to join the club at eight years old, go on to represent the club in the Premier League, go on to get an England call up, go on to play for England. They were really bought into that story. So, so they were really good to work with because they wanted to to carry on telling that story they they wanted to be the ambassadors for the for the academy and for the Southampton way so they were great I think what was really interesting was as we started to bring in international players and stuff like that a lot of them came in with with best practice from overseas and stuff like that so you know Dayan Lovren for example I mentioned before he had already quite an engaged fan base on his on his Twitter account from playing in France for example so he was almost coming in on another level altogether where he'd been doing a lot of this stuff already for a couple of years mm-hmm. on his own channels. And maybe actually, you know, players on the continent were slightly ahead of English players in, in doing this. They were a bit more communicative with their fans and, you know, using their own channels. So, you know, people like Dayan were really good. Toby Alderweireld was really good as well for, from the same from the same basis, really. Um, but look, I, I can't think of a single player down the years who was kind of difficult or, mm-hmm. or made things hard for us or didn't at least listen to us when we were trying to pitch some of these ideas to them. I'm not going to say that every player just nodded their head and did the silly things we asked them to do. Um, but they at least gave us the time of day to talk about why this would be a good thing for you, why this would be a good thing for the club. Um, they were just, you know, as I said, a, a real open-minded group of players. And I think generally the club always looked to try and buy good people as well as good players. And I think more often than not, that shone through, really. On Dejan, um, kind of mentioned that I think it was against Stoke um, where he did the live tweet. For whatever reason, I think he must have been unavailable and he, he took over the Saints Twitter account. And, I, and that was kind of one of the first times that I really remember um, kind of Saints going viral across kind of Premier League and people were talking about it. I think he tweeted about Peter Crouch yeah. being really tall or something. Um, yeah. But from your point of view in the media team, was that was that like a little bit of a leap of faith to kind of this is your. This is something that you've been working on uh, and creating a tone and voice, and then you, to give it to the player. I think in digital media things can kind of go really well, but they can also go really badly. So um, because it is such like a public facing yeah. uh, tool, so when you're doing those types of things, is it kind of difficult, or, or, or are you always kind of thinking about the contingency? Okay, what if this goes wrong? Yeah, um, maybe I should have been thinking about that a bit more. Um, <laughs> For me, if you're going to do a player takeover, you've you've got to let them take over. You know, I I didn't want to have this world where I had Dayan sitting next to me and I would say, okay, what would would you say now, Dayan? You know, what did you think of that, Dayan? It it kind of defeats the object for me. Um, I wanted these tweets to look and sound and feel very different to what we would normally do. Um, So don't get me wrong, he was sat next to me and I'm I'm looking over his shoulder a hell of a lot, but... (laughs) I kind of, I think I remember saying to him, "Look, if you if you're going to tweet anything controversial, can you just check it with me first? And I remember him kind of holding that crouch one up in front of me, and I was, I just didn't even know where to start with it. To the extent I just kind of went, "Yeah, go with it. Just make sure you use, you know, your hashtag or whatever to make sure people know that in five or six years or whatever it is now, years time, it's still getting retweeted. That people at least know that that wasn't just me." Um, they at least know that it was you. So I think that was the key thing was just making sure that he always put his hashtag that he was using on the day in the tweets. And yeah, he he wasn't, there was nothing wrong with the guy. He wasn't going to say anything nasty or horrendous. So, you know, if it was going to cause us a few kind of raised eyebrows, that was enough for me. I I didn't mind us raising eyebrows. So (laughs) 
um, yeah, that, that's all he did. And we had James Allbrass do one as well. And, you know, I think his one on his day reflected his personality. That one reflected Dayan's personality. That was the big thing for us was just allowing the players' personality to come through. So, yeah, it wasn't, um, I wouldn't say it was a totally blind eye decision, but, it, you know, equally giving them the trust and the ability to, to tell their own story, really. One of the things I wanted to ask about um, was kind of transfers because um, I guess people have a kind of perception of w- what it's like working for a football club. But w- within that, within the media team, I can imagine that can be quite a stressful part of the job as you you don't really want things leaking out when you know about potential signings or people potentially leaving the club. Yeah, from my kind of work on them, I found that, that no one transfer was the same as the other. There's no kind of standard path where, you know, I think people, myself included, maybe before I worked in a club, think it just goes exactly like a football manager. You make an offer, the other club accepts the offer, you can then start talking about the contract, then the player says yes to the contract and you press sign and the player turns up and has their photo done. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, there's lots of back and forth in all of those levels. They overlap at times as well. So you might be in a good place with a player, but not in a good place with a club. You might be in a good place. As a media team, we just had to be ready for whenever that kind of final go-ahead came. Um, and I think to, to your point, Patrick, I think ideally being able to surprise people was always you know, our ambition. I think, sadly, the bigger you get as a club, it's very rare. Um and probably think in in my three four years working there, probably only one transfer that was totally out of the blue, and which was Ryan Bertrand. And I remember okay. thinking at the time, you know, we'd 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 been up to Ryan's house to to interview him, to take photos, and sort of checking Twitter on the way back, and just knowing nobody has got this yet. Mm. It was it was so rare, really, really rare to be at that stage that it hadn't even been really rumoured. You know, there hadn't even been a saints are interested in level of story or coverage really so that was great i think getting the opportunity to genuinely surprise people with one um was rare but but was good as well so so yeah that was um that was a fun part you know transfers were fun without doubt like they were stressful you your day you never knew when your day was going to end there might be a call on a saturday when you're due to go to a wedding that somebody is signing and you're going to need to come it was just kind of one of those things that anybody who works at the club and anybody who works in football knows that they aren't going to wait for anybody you know that that Mm -hmm. medical is going to happen and it's going to have to happen at a certain time and that photo is going to need to be taken and that press release is going to be need to put out so it's just one of those things you you know in football and you kind of have to embrace it really um but they were fun without doubt it takes it to the next level when it's deadline day as well because I think when you're at the club we signed some some great players on deadline day um just from a little bit of research we brought in Van Dyke in 2015 um, on September 1st, we brought in Ordeverald and Mane, I think, on the same day yeah. um, in 2014. So I guess when you're working on deadline day, it, all of those things that you've just mentioned about it being stressful and working late, it's just to the max, I guess, is it? Yeah, that, that one in, in 2014 was just ridiculous. I, mem- I remember, yeah, as you said, uh, Sadio Mane joined, Toby Ordeverald joined, um, Mane was for some reason couldn't couldn't come into England, so his medical was being done overseas. I think um, we had a couple of players go out that day, if I remember right. I mean, Jos Hoyvelder, you mentioned earlier, I think went out on loan to Norwich. I think somebody else went out on loan. It was just one of those one of those days where you've got four or five things spinning at the same time. With each of those, you've got you've got clubs on the other side who are waiting to announce as well. So you're having to line up times, and and you're doing it with the knowledge that. 
11 o'clock is is the deadline and you're, you're trying to I remember literally with that that deadline thinking okay we're gonna have to go at 7.55 for Hoyerveld. We're going to have to go at 7.57 for Mane. We might have to go, at, you know, just ridiculous to the minute agreements of timings with the players, their equivalent clubs. Yeah, I just remember being absolutely shattered at the end of it. I remember <laughs> thinking, I, I, thinking I was genuinely on the verge of a heart attack at one point. I thought, you know, I was just, yeah, very, very stressful. Very, very stressful. But good fun. Again, you, you look back on it and you think about the fact you're at Staplewood that time of night and you've got a player sitting in a room down the corridor who's a Belgian international he's coming from Atletico Madrid you're thinking God what a signing this would be and there's a possibility it might not come off and yeah just just all of that is is just one of those times you're really privileged to work for a football club I think is, is being that close and being able to break that news to the fans who are desperately kind of hitting refresh on their Twitter accounts and announce all of their order and announce Mane and all those <laughs> tweets are kind of flowing yeah. into the, the club account and you're thinking, God, I don't know if I will and all that. Yeah, it's just brilliant, really brilliant. Great have, you ever, have you ever been, has it ever been close where um, you've kind of been preparing for a transfer either in or out and, and it hasn't worked out for whatever reason? No, I don't think so. Mm. Um, I, I think what we we tried to get good at was was almost reading the media to be honest to to get a foot ahead of things we didn't want to be in a situation where someone walked into our office and said you know Sadio Mane from from Red Bull Leipzig is is joining um and we hadn't done any research you know we didn't we didn't have a fact file ready to go we we didn't have any idea about what we'd wanted to do so we got quite good at just kind of listening to rumors and stuff like that you know I think I probably had this big folder on my desktop of of announcement sign-ins and stuff that I'd literally written on the basis of rumours. So those ones, yeah, of course, they, they all went in the bin. But you know, I, I can't think of an example that, that genuinely went in the bin, having kind of got that close. I think there were some that took a bit longer than we thought they were going to. I think uh, Victor Wanyama maybe dragged on a little bit longer than we thought. Um, Philip Juricic, who came on loan one January, that, that took a while to get over the line. But yeah, and, you know, generally, I think we, we had a pretty much 100% success rate once they were in the building. As far as like transfers go, and and the club generally was doing really well at that in the time that you were at the club. But one one of the things I did want to ask you about was kind of on the flip side um, was when Adkins got sacked. What what is it like when you're at a club um, when that kind of that news happens and you're in the media team and you're thinking about okay how do we handle this um, because obviously he's a, a huge fan favourite and there was at the time I remember quite a bit of criticism from. Um, non-Southampton fans and just football fans in generally about okay how do you how is this justified in the sense that he just took you from League One to the Premier League and I think it was February and um, we were doing we weren't doing well but we weren't by any means kind of cut adrift at the bottom of the table so what's the what's the atmosphere like in a media team when something like that happens and that kind of gets landed on your desk? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a challenge without doubt because there are some things that you know the fans are going to be excited by and there's some things that you know that they're not going to be excited by. I think at that point, you do have to become quite matter-of-fact and quite professional about your job, really. Um, Mm -hmm. I think anyone who's worked in comms knows that there's times when you're going to have to communicate difficult messages um, and there's times when you're not going to be able to to say or engage the fan base just as much as maybe you you need to at those times. Um, I think, you know... the fact is you have to ride the storm out a little bit I think you, you you know that the the decision has been taken by someone with the best interest of the business um and and you'd have to go along with that line basically and I think the professionalism takes over you become matter of fact you, you communicate at the right time the right message 
um, and you, you you have to do so in the knowledge that eventually you'll have the opportunity to re-engage that fan base and you you may have to work harder at some point to re-engage that fan base and you know I think at that point you, you have to start thinking again right okay the situation or the circumstances that we work in have changed but how do we revert to the kind of the practices and the values that we were working to before as a content team you know the things we were doing before i.e being able to entertain the fans being able to make the fans feel they were listened to being able to push the boundaries all of those things had to stay true you know and i think within two or three weeks uh, of of Maurizio's appointment you know we we were invited out to Barcelona with the team they had a training camp in Barcelona and we were being really encouraged to to go again almost to start producing content again to start communicating the messages that this manager wanted to get across and, and sooner rather than later that that started to shine through really I think the fans started to engage in the ideas you know watch the content listen to what he was saying you know li- listen and, and watch to what the players were saying in, in that content as well and you just have to you have to go back you know back to basics almost and, and start again and carry on doing the things you were trying to do before that change of manager and hope that those same tactics can can get the fans back a little bit really so yeah you know as I say it becomes matter of fact about the the announcement you know the, the communication of that message and then just going going back to the values that you kind of upheld before that really as a content team. So Maurizio came in and we obviously stayed up. Was it the follow? Was it that preseason then that you did the preseason uncovered stuff with? Um, I remember some of the players walking on coals and, and bits like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So that that would have been yeah that would have been that summer. Yeah. So that okay. that was was Maurizio's uh, only preseason. In fact, obviously he stayed for a year and a half, didn't he? Um, yeah. So yeah, that that was kind of out in in uh, Catalonia, which is obviously you know, a big part of Maurizio's life and his background. So, so yeah, he took the team out there again, encouraged us to, to be kind of open in our communication to show people the brilliant things that were going on. I think we went into that trip with Luke Shaw, just signing a new contract as well. So that was kind of a real, a real kind of pick me up for everybody seeing Luke Shaw commit to a new deal and stuff like that. So again, it was just a time of optimism for people at the club. You know, we'd, we'd finished the previous season strongly, stayed up with a couple of games to spare. Um, made a couple of big signings that summer as well. If I think about Dayan joining, I think about Victor Wanyama joining. So again, yeah, we were just encouraged to to go on the front foot, push boundaries, do things that other people weren't, uh, and just show people generally what what a good bunch of players and a good management staff we had. Really, that that was as simple as it was for us. We just wanted to show out, show the fans of the club what we were seeing, and what we were seeing was that here is a a great group of players, great personality, hardworking. And, and just let them into that world, really. That, that was as, kind of as far or as tactical as we got with it. So then you, you left Saints in, in 2016 for the FA. Mm. Um, can you just describe a bit about what you've been doing there for the past four years and then what your current role is as managing editor involves? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, it, it might surprise people to, to kind of hear that the, the FA's content team was and is smaller than, than Southampton's you know I walked into a team that wasn't as big you know didn't have certainly the number of people working um, and actually has a lot more to cover you know it, it's not just the England teams it's the FA Cup it's the Women's Super League you know the Women's Leagues have, have grown a lot over the last two or three years so yeah kind of walking into the FA at that time you you, you realise just, just how much you kind of had a at your disposal at Southampton, you know, the, the media team had been growing and growing every, every year, really. We've been taking on more and more people. Um, so then, yeah, kind of move, moving into the FA just at the end of February 2016. Um, I think my, my my kind of main remit at the start was 
was coverage of the England team. So went with the team to Euro 2016, um, went with the team obviously to the World Cup in 2018, two very different um, campaigns for England. Um, and then, yeah, I've just been generally kind of building out the the same sort of principles as I was trying to do at Southampton, but with, with the national team and with the national governing body really of, of engaging with our fans, you know, letting people into our world, um, showing again that this is a, a good group of players, a group of players that deserves the public support. Um, we did a lot of work around the, the 2018 World Cup really to try and transform the image of the England team, which I think, you know, hopefully came across and, and in some way, hopefully played its part in, in making that group of players feel supported and allowing them to go to the levels they did. Um, so that's been the bulk of my work really over the last, you know, amazingly four, five years going on. It's in time just seems to get away from you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's been great just growing that team now at the FA Um overseeing again a team that's grown you know I've, I've been lucky enough to be joined by one of my former colleagues from Southampton in, in Tom Biggs so we do feel like we're doing some of the same things that we were doing at Southampton really of just beginning to engage that that national fan base now entertaining people doing a few silly things here and there um, not quite as many silly things as we did at Southampton um, but yeah just just generally now starting to, to make the national team more accessible, more liked, um, as well as doing work with with the rest of the FA's brands as well. So, you know, it, expanding the Emirates FA Cup to an international fan base, that's been a big focus this year of um, new live clipping rights and making sure that people can see the Emirates FA Cup wherever they are in the world and they've got a perception in the FA Cup, as well as growing the women's leagues, as I touched on before as well, really starting to build that that fan base and, and that audience for for the women's league and the women's national team as well. So, yeah, it's been, um, as I say, God, what are we, four, four and a bit years now. It's been it's been busy, but yeah, it's been, it's been brilliant really just overseeing that team and, and helping them grow as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like an, an amazing job and, and it's interesting what you said about kind of joining around Euro 2016 and then um, the 2018 World Cup and the two different perceptions um, of a squad, I guess, because it, one of the things I was going to mention, it, it did seem like there was a real effort made on on the FA's part to, to kind of reach out. Um, and then on the flip side, um, the press as a result of it was seemed to be much more positive. And I was just wondering to what extent do you think that's due to okay, well, performances on the pitch were better at the 2018 World Cup versus the Euros. And to what extent is it a kind of a long, gradual process over two years or over 12 months or however long of kind of gradually opening up um, the England national team, um, whether it's on social media or whether it's to the national papers? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it, it was it was a longer build than just something we just kind of did going into the World Cup. You know, I think we we knew as soon as you had that Iceland game, that it was going to take years for us to to recover public support. You know, arguably that public support had been on the wane for, for a while, even before 2016. Um, and we knew that we were going to have to kind of wait it out a little bit. You know, it was going to take, as I said, at least until the next tournament to even have a shot at getting people back on board. Um, so as a content team, you kind of use that as, as two years to, to tweak your strategy, to refine what you're doing, refine how you talk about the team. You know, even down to really silly little things that we changed in terms of our marketing strategy of you know whenever you walked up to Wembley in in 2016 even you know the start of 2017 you would see pictures of players roaring and celebrating goals on big posters and, and big screens outside Wembley Stadium and then that wouldn't necessarily match up to how people felt when they saw the real thing so mm. 
the small tweaks about the way we actually portrayed the team. You know, we, we'll only show real images of the players rather than photo shoots of them standing in front of a camera and roaring or pretending to celebrate. So all of that kind of stuff was, was wearing away in the background, really building up to 2018. And I think that the biggest shift was just changing the things that we wanted this team to stand for. We, we wanted number one to be about hard work. You know, we did a lot of audience research of what do people want to see from the England team? You know, what, what, what's the number one thing that would unite older audiences and younger audiences? And that came through really clearly as, as hard work. So for us as a content team, we just show that, you know, we, we focus on the work they're doing in the gym. We focus on the work they're doing on the training pitch rather than doing stuff where they're telling people they're going to win games or they're telling people how hard they've worked. Let's just show it. You know, we've got the access and we've got the ability to go and show it. So that was a, a big thing for us. Um, and I think in, in general, it was just about setting expectation in line with um, the truth, really, going into that World Cup. We hadn't won a knockout game since 2006. We'd won, I think, two knockout games in the last 27 years and things like that. So we just had to be realistic, really, about what we were saying about this team, allowing them to communicate properly about that. Um, and then, yeah, going into the tournament and, and hoping that people's expectations were aligned with what we were doing. I think you, your point about was it on the pitch, was it off of it? I yeah. think people will will argue about that until until the cows come home, and I'm pretty sure we've argued about it internally at times. But the the thing that I've kind of said to a few people is when you work on social media, you get a good feeling for the temperature of the fan base almost you get a good feel for where they are and my point of reference more so than um the Croatia game was how they were feeling going into that first game so the very first game against Tunisia I was kind of really knowing that the way people were talking about us online was very different to the way I'd felt them talk about us for a couple of years you know mm -hmm. as, as the manager of the account you you know really whether people are behind you or not and people were behind us and then even going into the last few minutes of that Tunisia game, one all, you know, people could have been talking about same old England, here we go again. But I didn't get that feeling. You know, I got the feeling that people were, were willing the team on. And then lo and behold, Harry Kane scores a last minute winner. England have won their first game at a tournament for, you know, quite a while. Normally we draw the first game, bizarrely. Then you go on and beat Panama convincingly. And you feel like at that point, the ball is really rolling. And at that point, of course, results do take over. But... Yeah, my point of reference was the Tunisia game going into it, but also going into injury time, really. And, and that's what tells me that perception was different. When you're in the camp and you're working with the team um, at a major tournament like that, um, and then the ball does start rolling a little bit, and um, social media these days, it's, it's memes and it's that sort of thing. And then kind of Gareth Southgate and the waistcoat kind of takes on a life of its own. Um, to what extent do you see that sort of stuff? And, and that's an opportunity for you to kind of do you, I guess not tweak your strategy but you can kind of jump on that and and use it I guess to kind of build the momentum even further yeah I think so I think that this was one of our kind of first um social media tournaments really like I, I know as I said earlier that Twitter has been around properly since 2010 but this was the first one where you saw kind of real meme culture coming through and I think the opportunity for us was that we had um you know, we had a daily YouTube show. Um, we had the opportunity to kind of report this stuff back to the players almost and show them some of this stuff that was going on. So we were really, really attuned to what was being said on social media, spotting these trends, you know, spotting the things that had started to, to come out. So, you know, the it's coming home stuff, you know, we, we were seeing that and thinking, right, we've got to 
get this onto our YouTube show. We've got to embrace it. We were seeing the waistcoat stuff, you know, making sure that we were kind of getting that through and getting people having a bit of fun around that. There was a brief kind of Gareth Southgate wood trend that was going around of, you know, what, remember, what yeah. Gareth Southgate doing and stuff like that. And I'm, I remember desperately trying to explain that one to him and he, you know, he's, He's a modest guy, Gareth. I don't think he wanted he wanted anything to do with that one. But yeah, being really attuned to the stuff that was going on was was kind of one of our big jobs, really. And I think when you talk about the players as well, half of our job was around um, helping them communicate with their fans as well. So, you know, you saw the things that Harry Maguire, Carl Walker, really embracing that stuff and doing it on their own channels. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to try and tell England's followers just how good or likable these players are. Actually, they, they've got an even bigger opportunity to tell their fans and followers that England are good or that England is something they should support as well as Man United or as well as Liverpool. So half of our job was really about making sure that they felt able to do that. You know, I think in, in the past, maybe we've, we've scared players off from, from saying stuff because they're on international duty and you can't do this and you can't do that. Whereas we were like, yeah, look, go for it. Some of the things that we were doing, you know, at Southampton years ago, just encouraging people, yeah, go for it. Sending people photos, sending people images, sending people a link to a meme and saying, have you seen this? You, sh- you should have a go at doing some of that. So that was a kind of a big piece of, you know, almost unseen work that we did at the World Cup of just really encouraging those players to show their personalities, to engage directly with the fans because, you know, we, we were lucky enough to be close to them and know that they were, were good, likeable, hardworking guys that the country would get behind if they knew enough about them. So, yeah, you know, encouraging them to, to take part in that meme culture was, was definitely part of the job as well, yeah. And I guess off the back of that, really, as you mentioned, these players have they have massive um, social media followings themselves and, and they use social media and I guess they get feedback from their fans and they know what works and, and what doesn't really work. Does it? Do you get to the kind of point where you've got, whether it's Harry Maguire or Kyle Walker or, or even back at Saints, um, you get the players coming to you with with different ideas of things that they've seen that they want to try and do. I think, yeah, I, I think there's, there's been a few occasions of that. I think the real the real dawn of of that era has been since players have started to have almost their own social media managers. Mm. Like, I feel I feel bad about talking about this in 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 a public world in case people don't know this goes on it's a little bit like taking the head off mickey but um a lot of players don't run their own social accounts you know they, they've got people from agencies and sometimes just friends who know them really well who, who have got the time and the ability to do it but i think since a lot of those players have started working with agencies that do that we, we're getting more and more of that stuff um but i think generally players want to focus on on the pitch mm generally um you know some are more active than others but i think most players are pretty humble pretty shy um and want to focus on life on the pitch while understanding they do have to and should communicate with the fans and that's why they kind of lean on their club media team international media team and now actually their own personal media teams to do that for them really so yeah i can't think of an occasion where a player's come knocking on the door and said they want to do a tiktok or anything like that <laughs> It's probably coming. It's probably coming. To be honest, yeah, I'm sure. I was going to say, is that that's the big one now? Then is it? I think so. I think yeah. it's, you know, having been stuck in in the house for for a month, I've seen more and more of it. I think we we knew that TikTok was on the rise, without doubt. And you know, we've we've had a, a, an England account on there for a little while now. Um, but this this isolation period seems to be the real birth of TikTok. Um, 
I think it's, it'll be really interesting to see when hopefully soon the world is kind of unleashed from from its houses again what what happens to TikTok you know are there going to be people running down the street is it going to be stuff that people are doing on on match day now in St Mary's and stuff like that I think yeah TikTok could be the the big one it's definitely the first um the first channel since the big three or four that I think is going to survive now and, and last the test of time um until someone buys it potentially uh, right, I think that yeah. change things but yeah I think it, that'll be the interesting one now to see how TikTok kind of operates alongside Instagram and alongside Twitter and stuff like that I'd be I'm interested just to kind of get your your viewpoint more generally I guess around football I mean you're in charge of the the FA accounts but are there any other accounts whether it's clubs or players or associations that that you look at and you say okay that they're doing really good work in 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 social or on digital at the moment I think, to be honest with you, the standard is so high now that that it's good across the board. I think every, every Premier League club is is brilliant. You know, there's not a weak Premier League club at all because all of them now understand the the importance and the value of investing in in your team to do stuff like this. I think the ones that always impress me are the ones you know slightly further down the pyramid who. I know will be being run by someone who is also the press officer, who is also, you know, the player liaison, for example, it's the ones who are having to wear a lot of hats and are still managing to be innovative, to engage with the fans, to engage with the public in general. Um, So those ones always impress me when you see someone in the lower leagues doing something really well. I can't think of any specific examples, but there's been loads, loads down the years. I think all, all, all clubs probably take their, their um, inspiration from America. Like if you think about where the NFL, you know, clubs in the NFL and the, the NBA, et cetera, that they are years ahead of where we were. You know, if in 2012, we were just about starting to do stuff that American teams have been doing for two or three years. And I think that that will always be the case. They are just ahead of the curve when it comes to this stuff. Um, you always take your inspiration from them. But yeah, in, term, in terms of Premier League clubs, I think that the standard is really, really high now, definitely. So if you're looking towards uh, um, American clubs, is there anything that you see them doing really well at the moment that you think, okay, it's only going to be a matter of time, whether it's 12 months or 18 months that we start seeing Southampton do it or, or Arsenal or the FA? Yeah, I think the, the, the trend that we've been kind of watching for a couple of years is, is the way they put their accounts in the hands of their athletes or their players or whatever they may be. And I think you see a lot of this in college football more so than the NFL itself is that a lot of them, it almost feels like the players run the accounts, but they do so with a real high level of kind of branding and gloss and sheen. So you know that there's people in in sort of behind the scenes making it all look beautiful, etc. It's not it's not being run like a shambles. It's it's mm. being run to a real high standard in terms of the branding and the quality, but it feels like the players are running it. And I think for me those are the little things that we've tried to bring through here and there, both at Southampton and now now with the FA, is when you can put an account in the hands of the players and remove people like me. You know, there's there's no way people should know who I am. Like there's there's no way I should be doing this podcast because in in the NFL we would be kind of invisible. You know, it would feel like the players run the accounts and there are no, you know, whatever you want to call me, digital this or social media that. That for me is is the way that the the American sports have really done great stuff, and I think it's culturally different in America, right? We we know that the athletes are far more kind of out there, happy to communicate, good public speakers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that's why it feels right to be able to put the account in their hands and do vlogs and stuff like that. So 
you know, look, five or six years ago, we wouldn't be where we are now. We wouldn't have players doing dances and uploading them, but that's happening now. So don't get me wrong, I think we'll get there, but I think that's potentially why America is a little bit ahead of the curve and, and the trends that we're seeing now is just being able to, to have athlete-led and athlete-controlled media, I think, is, is the way to go. And um, I guess to, to kind of to end on, just to, mm. to speak a little bit about um, coronavirus and how that's impacted, I guess, your day-to-day, um, like ev- everyone, really, I guess you're, you're working remotely. But then for the FA, I guess there's, there's been a lot of internal discussions about various different things, um, related to uh, seasons continuing or whether it's Premier League, whether it's non-league or, or EFL. Um, so could you just speak a, bit, a little bit about how your, how your mm. job's changed um, over the last month or so? Yeah, I think w- with all of those things, you know, they are all, as a content team, they're all totally out of our hands. And I think the sooner we accepted that, the better, in the sense that this, this is a situation, you know, a global pandemic is something that nobody knows how it plays out from here and I think that the sooner we kind of put the idea of will the Euros be this year will they happen in November will it be next summer we kind of got got past that really quickly and and we're in the same place at the moment with with the FA Cup with the Women's Super League just as the whole of domestic football is right now is we just don't know the answers so I think we kind of got past that really quickly I think the the big balance that we we've been trying to strike and have been trying to strike since really start of March if not earlier and I imagine this is the same for anybody in this role is one just how relevant are we right now do do people really want a football team to be playing out videos of themselves scoring goals and stuff like that the other side of the coin is people need us right now people are bored people need entertaining people need some hope people need to learn new skills and acknowledging that we can fill that void really so that's kind of the the seesaw and the balancing act that we've been trying to strike for you know as I say a month if not longer now and I think we're doing a decent job of it I think we we know when when is too much and I think the volume of content coming out of sports teams has probably died off a little bit now that that first week or two just felt like a whirlwind, you know, both both coming out of our channels as well as just football and sport in general of people trying to, you know, teach people how to wash their hands, to show a classic game, to how to exercise in your back garden, etc. You know, we we were certainly guilty of not having necessarily much structure to that. And I think that's probably how we used the second and the third week was to answer those questions I said at the start of just how much is too much? Are we relevant? What do people need from us? And then find a structure and a rhythm and a a plan really. And I think what we've tried to strike now is we've launched a campaign called Football Staying Home and we have daily themes on the England accounts where we, we focus on things like motivation and mindfulness on a Monday Fridays are about fun. Um, there's a lot of alliteration going on there, obviously. Um, and, and that's given us a bit of a rhythm and has, has given us the ability to answer the questions of why we're doing this. When is too much too much? Um, you know, when when should we take a back seat and let public health messaging take the first seat? You know, I think the biggest thing we know is that people are bored. That That, that is 100% yeah. true. There's people who are bored. There's an ability for football to fill some of that boredom and to give people hope, make them think about good times that have passed, to make them excited for good times that will come yeah. again, hopefully. So mm-hmm. that, that's really been our focus, is how can we celebrate some of England's great things in the past? 
how can we still get people excited about the future without knowing necessarily when that future is going to come um all of that kind of stuff really but also first and foremost just encouraging people to keep heeding the government advice to make sure that we never try and put ourselves in the box seat that people know we are certainly supporting the public messaging we're not trying to override it or anything like that i think just striking that balance of when are you relevant versus when are you not I think is is the big mm. one for us. So yeah, I think we, we've got into a good rhythm now. So we're, we're in a decent place and just hoping that in the short term, we can give people a bit of happiness and entertainment and in the long term, we can get back to normal. Well, I can vouch, I can vouch for uh, having watched Germany 1, England 5 the other day when you did that on YouTube. Um, I think if that... we could, if, if we had some KPIs to hit, I think we would just do do Germany 5, England 1 <laughs> this week. Then we'd do Beckham scoring against Greece next right. week. And but turn that out every week and we can all have a holiday but but yeah. no we're um yeah we're, we're just trying to keep people entertained and happy really that's the biggest thing yeah well that was great I enjoyed watching that um yeah. well thanks very much for your time Jim it's been really uh, fascinating to speak to you um and and as you said uh, hopefully uh, it won't be too much longer before we things are starting to return to some sense of of normalcy um and it'd be great to have football back <laughs> uh, so yeah. we can uh, stop watching all these classic games but no thanks very much for your time no my pleasure thank you right jack let's bring you back in what are your thoughts uh on on jim's interview there and what you had to say any any key points stand out for you yeah definitely firstly i just think that was a really really that was a fantastic interview and a really insightful interview into a a different world of the football club, really, a different side of the football club. From a from a personal point of view, I think, well, Jim was obviously working at the club during a really successful time. When we uh, won promotion, had some decent seasons in the Premier League, and I think I speak for you know most Saints fans in saying that we're all consuming every bit of content that the club were pushing out during the time because it was genuinely very good and engaging content and a lot of funny stuff that they were, they were tweeting and posting on Instagram. And it was stuff that you could... You could share with your mates that maybe weren't that into football or supported, you know, different clubs and they would still enjoy it. So, yeah, I mean, you touched on a few things during the interview, but, you know, the different kind of kit announcements, the the kind of tongue in cheek ones when we were calling players up for different national teams and stuff that other clubs weren't doing. I think we took ourselves a little bit less seriously, which worked because as a fan, I think when you see those different sides of the players and you see them, you know, kind of a bit more jokey you you can kind of relate to them a bit more uh rather than a very serious interview post-match interview or something like that so I don't know I just feel like it was it was a great time for the club on the pitch but off the pitch it was obviously really successful too and I just found it interesting how obviously he had that great great um you know part of his career at Southampton moved on to the FA and how noticeable it was how their communication strategy shifted as well to something that was just previously you know maybe a little bit boring and a little bit you know mundane to something that you had behind the scenes interviews you had younger more relatable people interviewing players that would get different answers out of them because they would see them playing FIFA and it would just be a little bit more like laid back and you'd just see a different side to the players so I thought it was really interesting speaking to Jim obviously someone that played a key role in that shift in strategy just to um yeah, as I said, from a fan's point of view, you feel closer to the club if you if you can relate to the players and you feel closer to the national team if you can relate to the players. So overall, yeah. I think it worked. Yeah, I think that's definitely um, definitely a key part of working in digital media is, and I think some some people it can be a little underappreciated, but I kind of just think that our players are either likeable or not likeable. But 
fair play mm. to, to Saints in England. They, they've given the players an opportunity to show their real personalities. And, and as you say, not necessarily just kind of stick a mic in their face after a game. And, and it's quite difficult for them to say anything other than, oh yeah, we, we worked really hard and the result didn't quite come off. You, you do want that behind the scenes stuff that shows them um, as they really are. So I think that plays a, a big role in creating that bond between um, players and fans, which is, which is really, really important. Um, so, which brings us on to next week, uh, episode six of Owen the Saints will be out next Monday. We haven't got a guest locked down yet. Um, so keep an eye out on our Twitter and Instagram and you'll, you'll find out there first who that will be a few things in the pipeline, but haven't confirmed them yet. So yeah, that'll be out next Monday until then. Cheers. Cheers guys.